You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so glad you're here, as always, and if this is the first time that you're tuning in, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Now, in this conversation, I'm speaking with author Kaija Langley about her new middle-grade novel, The Order of Things, and we're diving into the exploration of complex emotions and the intensely personal journey of grief which is skillfully portrayed through the eyes of the protagonist, April. Now, Langley's narrative provides a safe haven for these profound emotions and offers valuable insights for both adults and children alike. So this is an episode you can listen to by yourself, or if your kids are in the car, it's also good for them to hear. Because even if something isn't happening in your life right now, we all know that storms will come, and if we can prime ourselves with resiliency and and just techniques to weather the storms in a better way, we're all better off. In this conversation, I want it to be a jumping off point for you into a journey of self-discovery and healing. Um, And again, if something is going on in your life right now, I think it's going to be a balm. And if nothing is happening and you just want to hear about the author and how the book came to be, I think you're going to enjoy this as well. So please enjoy this episode with Kaija Langley. Well, hello, Kaija. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much, Liz. Yeah, absolutely. I love, love, love having authors on. That's no secret to this show. Um, And before we get into your wonderful book, The Order of Things, can you give us a bird's eye view of the events in your life that led you to the page? Um, You know, I was raised by a mom. I had my mom and my dad, but I'm an only child. And I was pretty much an introvert, and I still am. And I sort of gravitated to words and stories. And my mother was a big reader. She was an elementary school teacher. And so I started reading early. I started walking and talking early. And because I was still a bit socially awkward, I naturally gravitated to stories and books and we would often sort of sit side by side in a room and she'd have her book and I'd have my book and that would be our together time. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's not everyone's sort of experience growing up, but um, it was, it felt natural to us. I love that. And I mean, I can totally relate to that. I grew up one of four children, but reading and books and story time was such a a center part of our lives. And I think that's why I still am a voracious reader to this day. Um, and so did you start writing super early? Was it was it easy for you? Because I think for a lot of people who love to read, t- transitioning that to actually writing something is extremely difficult. It is. And I did start early. Um, I started writing poetry when I was probably about seven. And that was um, inspired by a trip to my local dentist. I mean, you're sitting in any sort of doctor dentist office. There's usually some little, you know, there's adult magazines and then there are children's magazines. And in my dentist office, they had copies of the Highlights magazine. Mm. And there were, you know, cute little magazines that had little stories about kids and animals and whatnot. And in the back, there was always a page for submissions from young readers mm. who were submitting their poems. And, you know, and it would say, you know, some poem, and then it would say Richard, age eight. And it struck me. I was like, oh, well, an eight-year-old can write a, a poem. I can write a poem, too. And so I sort of started tinkering with words. And, you know, being young, most of my poetry at that age, it, it rhymed. So, you know, I went 
you know, I went outside for the ball in the fall and, you know, it was horrible, but you know, <laughs> you're a kid and you just sort of, you play with words, you're getting used to mm-hmm. language. And I just kept doing it. I'd created a little notebook where I wrote my poems in. And then one day I got up the courage to take one of my poems into class at school. And my teacher liked it enough that she photocopied it, passed it around the class, which was, you know, frightful to me because I thought I was just sharing this very personal thing with the teacher. Um, But she wanted to support me and she thought it was, a, I guess, a decent enough poem. But what really sort of turned the corner for me in terms of writing and reading was one of my classmates sort of accused me of copying it from a book. And when he did that, I realized, well, I might be on to something. That Mm -hmm. if I can, if another peer can think that I copied something from a book and things in books must be good because they're published, then maybe, I don't know. (laughs) So from that point forward, I just, you know, I wrote poetry for a very long time up through high school. And then I sort of ventured into longer form short stories. And I even tried my hand at a novella when I was a teenager, um, which of course was absolutely abysmal as, as most early drafts of anything are, but I was sort of developing my stamina as a writer because it really does take quite a lot of stamina to, to write any length of a story because it's not just the writing of it, it's the revision and everything after that. I think that's something really important that most people don't know about or talk about is that it's really not that first draft. It really is the discipline to go back and to have the stamina to make those revisions and to even have a critical eye towards yourself or an ear towards criticism and to have it not be devastating. Because like you said, you're you're introverted, you're sensitive. That's why you're such a great writer. And so that's got to be hard coming from, you know, someone who is still supporting you. And then you have to hear that and you're like, okay, okay, like I'm going to make these changes. Right. Yeah. By the time I got into high school, I was in AP English and, and I think in my senior year, I took a, an advanced creative writing class. And it was there that I really sort of understood and better understood the process of revising and um, you know, over and over and over again. I think we started with a story and that story ended up being you know, you were going to revise this at least five times before it will be it will be considered final. We sort of went into it knowing that, and in a way that that sort of releases some pressure because because yeah. you realize it doesn't need to be perfect at the outset, um, which most people don't allow themselves. You know, they put so much pressure on. Okay, I've got to get it right. I've got to choose the exact right word this first time around because if I don't. You know, and then they end up sort of stymieing themselves and they get stuck mm. because they, they're waiting for perfection. And my high school English teacher sort of helped us not even get to that place of this is going to be perfect. It was from the outset, this is not going to be perfect. And you're going to work on it multiple times before you'll be graded on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, but taking feedback is is still very challenging. Yeah. It never gets sure. it never gets easier. Yeah. Well, I think that's so brave, though, in a way. I mean, you're you're getting battered and you're pushing forward because the message, you know, whatever you really feel called to share needs to come out. And that's what I feel really happened with this book that you're putting out, mm-hmm. this middle grade novel, The Order of Things. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the main character, April, and how how you wanted to bring her to the world? Sure. Um, so The Order of Things is a middle grade novel in verse, which means it's written in a sort of poetic form. Um, I initially 
try to bring this story forward in, in traditional prose, the way most novels look, um, but it wasn't working, and I didn't understand why it wasn't working. April is an 11-year-old girl who lives in Boston in the city, and she's um, not. She, she's very comfortable in her life. She's very comfortable with the people in her life, and she's not uh, really good with change. You know, change, as, as most kids, you know, sort of like, I like what I like. Change is not good. And um, I won't say that I was necessarily the inspiration for that uh, as, as a kid, but I will say that I, I did love music growing up as, you know, my mother was a, a school teacher, but she introduced me to performance arts and music and um, visual arts pretty early on. So I sort of grew up around the arts and, and seeing that you could be an artist from a young age. You know, I, I played the piano, I danced ballet for a little while. I, I did a lot of different things. I ultimately landed in sports, basketball and track, because that's really where I sort of felt I, I really sort of thrived. But, um, but I wanted April as a character to sort of have this life where she feels very comfortable and very supportive before everything starts to change. And, uh, even though I tried to write it in prose, it took a quite a long time for the for April's voice to come to me. And when it did, it came in, in verse, which is why it's written that way. Hmm. Were you surprised when that happened, when you, when you made that switch and then everything started flowing more easily? I was very surprised. And, and I was a little scared because I was like, I don't know if I want to write a whole book in, in poetry, but it, you know, she's a drummer. She's an aspiring drummer. And so so the rhythm of the language in verse lends itself to that because she's she's learning how to drum versus her best friend, who is almost like her brother, um, is a violin prodigy. You know, he just he took picked up the violin and he's got music in his, his roots and he just sort of went with it. But he also believes deeply in working really hard at it. He's got really big aspirations for himself and his music. And so she's somewhat in the shadow of that but they support each other through it. Was Z based on a real character too? A real person? Uh, he wasn't so much based on a real person, but, you know, I did have a best friend growing up and something similar that happens to Z happened to my best friend. Mm -hmm. So um, Z, by happenstance, needed to be um, that character. And so, you know, the my best friend, um, where the similarities lie are that, you know, I went to a different school than he did, um, and we were neighbors to each other. We lived on, we lived around the corner from each other, so our backyards abutted each other, and we played all the time. But he went to school at the public school, and I went to school at the local, you know, parochial school, went to St. Joe's, and, you know, we'd see each other in between. And we played all the summer and after school and everything. And so, you know, much like in the story, story it's very devastating when um, a, a sudden and unexpected change happens. Right. So, Well, in the story, Z dies suddenly, and it's mm -hmm. devastating, obviously, to April. How did you go about bringing this event in? You know that this is for middle schoolers, but it's important to teach about the realities of life. How did you approach that while still keeping in mind that this is for younger readers. Right. You know, it's, it's important to always remember that even though, you know, travesties happen in the world, 
and we think they happen to adults, so often they happen to young people equally, you know, and, and with the same frequency, but we, we think of it differently. You know, when I lost my best friend when I was six, you know, April and Z are 11, but when I lost my best friend at six, we weren't at a place in our society where we understood that young people had emotions and feelings and could, could grieve and feel loss. Um, and so I remember losing my best friend and maybe staying home a day or two. And then I was at school and nobody at school mentioned it. Nobody at home really mentioned it. I mean, nobody asked how I was feeling about it. It was sort of like he was here one day and he was gone the next. And I really wanted to create a story where, the world has changed significantly since I was a young person, but the world has not changed so much that young people don't experience loss and grief. And sometimes it's not just a pet or a grandparent. Sometimes it's an actual peer. Mm -hmm. um, and we live in a much more complex world today than we ever have. And, you know, tomorrow, I think, is National Grief Awareness Day, August 30th. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of social media out around books for young people to help young people manage their grief and their loss. And the thing about writing for young people is that even when you're dealing with a very hard subject like sudden cardiac arrest, which is what happens to Z, you know, there has to be hope. There has to be, uh, there has to be some note of hope in there. You don't just drop any reader, especially a young reader into something as devastating as that. And then just say, okay, that's life. You know, there, there has to be a hope. There has to be something to be hopeful toward. And so I was careful with that. Um, and a lot of what happened with that story was I really vacillated with how much of how much of Z to be on the page. Mm. I initially, before my editor bought it at Penguin Random House, um, I did not want that much of Z to be on the page. I didn't want the reader to invest that much in Z because I already knew it was going to be a hard fall. Yeah. And my editor convinced me that I actually needed to invest much more in Z, that I really needed to allow the reader to feel that shock and that loss um, for themselves as April feels it. And so I think it was, it was the right decision, but it, it was, it was hard to do. Yeah. Did you feel in a way that you were almost reliving your childhood friend's story again when you were writing this? Was it cathartic? It was only slightly cathartic because my experience, while it was, you know, the undercurrent of sudden cardiac arrest is the same, how it happened was very different. Um, you know, in the order of things, I don't want to give too much away. There's a, a complicated grief to it because April, unlike me and my best friend, I had no idea that that was going to happen. April has some inkling that something isn't right, but she's not quite willing to follow her instincts. And she thinks she's doing the right thing. And when it doesn't turn out that way, she feels not only grief and loss, but she also feels guilt. And that's a very common yeah. feeling for, you know, if a parent passes or if a sibling passes, for young people to feel like, oh, my God, it's my fault. I did that. Um, and I did not have that. That was not my experience. I love that you did address that emotion because that to me, you know, you listen to Brene Brown and all these things like guilt and shame are so intricately linked. And so to mm -hmm. address it 
to a person who is still developing, their brain's still developing, to give them even the vocabulary to these emotions, I think empowers them to such an extent where you really can then change the trajectory of your life. So I think that if any, like I'm getting chills even saying this because it's like you're giving these children the power to almost take back their control and 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 regulate their own bodies and minds when something really tragic does happen and to be like okay this is this is normal this happens all over the world all the time I'm going to be okay there is that that line of hope throughout so can you talk a little bit about, more about that what was the hope that you wanted to leave with the reader what is the through line through this whole story the through line through the whole story is compassion that you know April has compassion for her best friend when he's living. She has a little bit less compassion for her classmate who she sees is going through, you know, some challenges and some changes, even though she doesn't understand why. And in having compassion for Z and losing him, she also continues to, to sort of mine that thread of compassion for herself after losing him but also compassion for her classmate who's going through something very different, but equally hard. And, you know, really to me, it's a story about how can we remain compassionate in the face of really difficult things? It is really, really easy to not be compassionate with ourselves and most certainly with other people. But I really wanted this to be a story that has lost in grief but also is about compassion at the end of the day. Life doesn't always turn out the way we, we think it's going to turn out. People are not always the people we think they are because we don't know what they're going through. And, you know, if we can just show up with a little bit of compassion, um, even in our hardest moments, it makes a huge difference, not only for us, but for, you know, other people around us as well. And so, you know, throughout the story, there are, are many adults, but there are also other people where April engages with and they're compassionate with her. They give her, you know, free cocoa on the side of the church on a really frigid evening. They, you know, pull her aside when they find her in the bathroom, really sort of going through a, a difficult moment and say, you know, it's okay. It's okay what you're feeling. It's okay mm -hmm. to be angry. It's okay to lash out and understand that we are all going through something. And in that moment, April can't sort of digest that because she's not there yet. But throughout the book, you can see her sort of grow into that awareness and understanding and compassion when another opportunity presents itself to say, I can make a different choice in this situation. Wow, that's so powerful. Do you feel like we have to go through these tests to get to the testimony part, to get to the part where we're... <laughs> <laughs> more spiritual and, and more compassionate and loving towards one another? Like, is this just part of the deal? Oh, it's absolutely part of the deal. There, there is, there is no, there is no growth without the, without the trauma, without the change, without the, the loss, the grief. Um, it would be lovely if we all could just sort of tiptoe through life and through the daisies, just happy all the time. Um, but those moments when we have them uh, are, are so precious and I think are what I call moments of grace. Mm -hmm. And we all have moments of grace and they are so much more, you know, we, we feel them so much more deeply if we're being, if we're allowing ourselves to feel them, um, then we do the moments of, of, of real sort of trauma and challenge. And 
you know, trauma and challenge for doesn't always require someone to, to die or someone to be in a really bad predicament. Trauma and challenge on a given day can be being stuck in traffic. It can be, it can be, you know, being really frustrated by an experience that didn't quite go the way you thought it was going to go, but that's sort of life. Yeah. That's sort of life. And we don't get to, uh, speaking with my spouse this morning, I said, you know, I do much better when I've got a lot of clarity or I think I have clarity. And with that clarity, I, I trick myself into thinking I have some control, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's a, tr- it's a mental trick. We really don't have the control that we, that we, we all would probably want to have and like to have in the, in life because that's just not how life works, but we do the best we can. Do you think that clarity that op like that does give us options? Like, yes, these there's these external circumstances that are, you know, pushing our boat side to side. But if we have the clarity, we can be like, oh, I'm going to turn the sail this way. And then you can like take advantage of the external circumstances. I mean, I don't want to think that there's no there's no control. I mean, that's devastating. <laughs> right. I mean, but there, there, you do have you are the sort of locus of control. You, yeah. you know, but you just can't control anything outside of you. And a perfect example is publishing a book, you know, mm-hmm. um, an author's journey. Every author's journey is different. And I have known since I was seven or eight that I wanted to grow up to write books for a living, that I would work probably at some university and teach during the year. And then I'd spend my summers in the south of France writing books. Mm-hmm. That was what my 10 year old self honestly thought. My life is not that different, although I don't spend my summers in the south of France. Oh. But the reality of what it really takes to get a book from conception to the shelf in a bookstore requires so much clarity. It requires so much dedication, so much patience. So many ingredients go into that process. And in many parts of that process, you don't have any control over. You don't have any control over the production schedule. You don't have any control over what your cover is going to be sometimes. You know, you know, there are just all these little instances where you really, you can't control and you don't have clarity about, but you've got to trust and you've got to stay focused on the thing that you said you wanted. So going in the mm-hmm. direction that you say you want it. And, and even in the book that helps April, she wants to be a drummer. That's her aspiration. That's her dream. And despite losing Z and despite other changes in the family structure, she she comes back to that as her beacon. That's the thing that holds her. Wow. That's so beautiful. I mean, for any reader, whether you're in middle grade or, or an adult, I think that's a message that we can all benefit from. And just to be reminded of, the, of that through having this conversation, I'm so appreciative. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's a really great section right there. But if there were anything else that you'd want the reader to get out of reading the book, what would that be? Um, It would be not to relegate it to young readers. I think it is most certainly, it is a middle grade book and it's meant for young readers to have a, a private way of engaging with grief and loss. And, and, but really it's a conversation starter that, adults can also use and have um you know it's for for young people to be able to talk to their peers about what they're going through but also be able to hand to an adult a teacher a parent uh you know a coach someone at their church to say 
read this? Can we talk about it? Maybe I'm experiencing some of these, these feelings, these issues, these things, despite what the loss might be. It doesn't have to be losing a best friend. Um, that is just, you know, the cornerstone of this story. But grief and loss and, and coming through it, surviving it, even thriving beyond it, is something that we all have the capacity to do. And young people, above all else, are, are probably the most resilient because they're still young and they still have so much life ahead of them in most cases. So it's not the ending point, it's the beginning point. And it's a, it's a conversation started to have. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, we are almost to the end of time here. Um, if there were any lasting message that you'd want to leave with the listener, the mother tuning into this, who, you know, wants to get this book for their child, just even if nothing has happened yet, just to have that, again, that vocabulary and that wherewithal, if something does, when the, the storms do come, what would you mm-hmm. want to say to her? Kindness matters. Compassion matters. Teach your children how to be compassionate with themselves and with others. And we'll all be better off for it. Mm, I love that. I feel like that's something your mother really imbued in you. She did. She did. She was, she was, uh, she was a wonderful human. Mm. And, you know, no, no mother is perfect and no human is perfect, but she, she made sure that I understood that I was supported in the world and that other people in the world might have had and might have different challenges than I have, but that doesn't make them any, any less than or any better than I am. So if we can all sort of walk around with, with that at top of mind, I think we'll be all right. Mm, chills again. Okay, this is an interview of chills. I love it. Kaija, <laughs> where can our listener find out more about you and get the book? Well, you can find the book at most bookstores. You can also go to my website at kaijalangley.com and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at MsCalWrites71. Beautiful, beautiful. And do you have any other books that you're thinking about writing that are coming down the pike? Uh, I already do have a picture book out called When Langston Dances, and it's about a little black boy's first day of ballet class. It is inspired by my godson, Langston, who was the only boy in his class and who is turning out to be quite the ballet dancer. Now he's 13. Wow. Um, And I've got a forthcoming picture book in 2024 called A Century for Caroline about a great-great-grandma, Caroline, who meets her great-granddaughter for the first time on her 100th birthday and imparts some knowledge about what it means to live this long with her. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm going to have to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be back and really appreciate being here today. Absolutely. Thanks, Kaisha. Okay. Take care. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast.